Well, my family had the opportunity a few weeks back to make a, a road trip through the Southwest, made several stops along the way, but the ultimate destination was the Grand Canyon. Now, I've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, so have you. There's one of them right here behind me. I've seen pictures all my life. I've even seen videos of drones that fly over it and things like that. So it's not as though I was completely unprepared or, or ill-equipped or that I had no idea what I was going to see when I got to the Grand Canyon. But nothing prepares you for the sheer vastness of this canyon. The first glimpse of the canyon as we walked up this paved hill to the edge of the, the, what's called the South Rim, and I got the first sort of panoramic view of this canyon was staggering to behold. It was enormous and vast and deep. And, you know, it, it's, it's bigger and more beautiful and more grand than even the, the name itself implies. And if, you were, if someone were to ask, hey, describe what the Grand Canyon was like, be a little hard to do, wouldn't it? Some of you I know have seen the Grand Canyon. I've had conversations after that trip with a number of you who said, oh man, I was there and it's, it's amazing. And we kind of had this moment of recognition. There's, no, there's nothing to describe or explain the beauty and the vastness of this natural wonder, which of course is from the very hand of our great God. But if someone were to say, describe to me what the Grand Canyon looks like, what would you say? What words would adequately convey the sense of my smallness in comparison to the vastness and majesty and creativity and artistic beauty of this wonder of our God? Well, this is a little bit like how it feels for a preacher embarking on a series through the book of Romans. Romans has been used by God in unimaginably powerful ways in the history of the church. This letter of Paul has been used in so many significant ways. The, the conversions of men like Augustine and John Wesley and Martin Luther, who's, who famously came to the verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1 and his whole world was opened to the good news of God's righteousness revealed apart from works of the law. And of course, Martin Luther's conversion was a spark of the European reformations in the 16th century. And so th there's been these historical movements of God that have in large part ridden on the coattails of the book of Romans and truths contained therein. Even the preaching of the book of Romans. If you do a little survey of the, the, the history of preaching in Romans, you come across some really substantial things. The famous Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones preached for 13 years through the book of Romans. Don't worry, I'm not planning to spend that long in it. You're probably familiar with maybe the most famous and perhaps most effective method of evangelism, the Roman road, right? It comes straight from verses in this book. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But good news, Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And then the call in Romans 10, 9, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. How many sinners have been brought to repentance and faith through those very words? How many of you have adopted a life verse from this book? Perhaps Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or the very end of Romans chapter 8 that celebrates our confidence that nothing in, on earth or under the earth or in heaven can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There are many worthy uh, candidates for a life verse from the book of Romans. John Piper, in the first sermon uh, in his own nearly nine-year series through the book of Romans, which he titled The Greatest Letter Ever Written, said this, This book is the place where the gospel of Christ shines most brightly and most thoroughly in all the Bible. And so as we open the book of Romans, we've walked to the brink of the Grand Canyon of gospel exposition. And it's as though someone has said, can you describe it for me? So, here we go. And I hope you'll go on this journey with me. Well, why did Paul write this letter to the Romans? I've identified, and I'll point out to you, three purposes that were in his mind and heart in writing this letter. The first is a missionary purpose. Paul has a missionary purpose in writing this letter. So he is on his third missionary journey when he pens this letter, probably from Corinth. And he's planning to travel all the way to the western reaches of the Roman Empire, to Spain. And on his way to Spain, he intends to stop in Rome. And his purpose that he repeats multiple times throughout this letter is to garner missionary support from these congregations in Rome. He hasn't been to Rome yet. He says that repeatedly. I have intended to come to you. I hope to come to you. So his aim, at least in part, is to make it through Rome and to garner the support, both financially and in terms of spiritual encouragement and prayer, for his mission to Spain. And so you'll see glimpses throughout this letter of this particular, uh, of Paul's particular missionary work and the general missionary call of the church in the world. It's a repeated theme throughout this letter. So Paul is writing with a missionary purpose to gain the, the support for his mission in the world. He writes with a pastoral purpose, a pastoral purpose. There, the, the main uh, incident or situation that we can identify uh, surrounding this letter is that there has been conflict between Jews and Gentiles in these churches. The church we know in Rome was not planted by Paul, who himself has never been there, and it doesn't seem that it was planted by any of the other apostles directly. So who planted the first church in Rome? We're not sure. We don't know. One plausible explanation is that perhaps Jews who lived in Rome had traveled to Jerusalem for Passover and they were there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and the apostles began declaring the mighty works of God. Then we have this lengthy sermon of Peter recorded in Acts chapter 2 and we're told at the end of that chapter that some 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. 
Well, it could be that among those 3,000 souls were some Jews who lived in Rome. And when they traveled back to Rome, they carried the gospel with them. And so they began evangelizing in their families and their synagogues and in their town. And so they were, there were churches formed by the, the converts to Christianity through the witness of these converted Jews. That could be the case, but we're not sure. What we do know is that Rome is, of course, a hub of Greek and Roman life and activity. So a predominantly Gentile city, although obviously there are Jews living there. In the year 49, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And so the Jews disappeared for a time, probably about five years. And so during that period of time, of course, these congregations would have been exclusively Gentile congregations because the Jews have been kicked out. But about the year 54, they seem to start coming back. So perhaps that edict is lifted or whatever, and the Jews begin to return. And now, as you might imagine, there's some tensions, doctrinal tensions and cultural tensions that have begun to exist among the Jewish and Gentile members of these congregations. And so Paul writes with a pastoral purpose to cultivate unity among the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's why you'll see a lot of things where he seems to be addressing Jews in one minute and then Gentiles the next because he is working to cultivate unity among the Jewish and Gentile believers within the same congregations. And so he writes with a missionary purpose and a pastoral purpose. And thirdly, he writes with a doctrinal purpose, a doctrinal purpose. So he expounds in detail the gospel of Jesus Christ as the ground of unity among God's people. So he doesn't just merely insist that Jews and Gentiles should get along. He demonstrates how the gospel of God has actually achieved their oneness in Christ. Now the letter has a familiar basic structure of gospel exposition, followed by moral instruction. And that's pretty typical of Paul's letters. Another great example of that is the book of Ephesians, where the first four or so chapters are all about the gospel and what we believe and who we are in Christ. And then chapters five and six are really about how, what this looks like as we live it out in community together. And he follows much the same pattern here, but the gospel exposition portion is much longer, and if I can say this, more elegantly articulated than anywhere else in Paul's letters or the rest of the New Testament. And given Paul's lack of personal relationship with the Roman Christians, since he hasn't been there yet, it makes sense that he feels the need to lay out his doctrine at greater length and clarity than in other places. Though it should be noted, it's not necessarily intended to be a theological treatise. It's not a systematic theology. Paul does not say everything that a Christian believes, and there are certain key themes and doctrines that actually he doesn't say very much about, and if this were a systematic theology, you would expect him to say more about certain things than he does. For example, the church. There's not a robust doctrine of the church in the book of Romans. Nevertheless, Paul clearly set out to provide a detailed exposition and application of the gospel in this letter, which provides Romans with a distinctly theological flavor, which perhaps is one of the reasons that people have returned to this over and over and over through the centuries. All right, I'm going to give you a very broad outline, <clears throat> excuse me, a very broad outline of the book, <clears throat> excuse me, in only four chunks, all right? You could, there are ways to break this down a lot further and have more detailed 
outlines, but just to give us a little glimpse of where we are at any given point. Where does this passage fit within the big kind of structure or plan of, of Paul's book? There's the structure for you. And I would encourage you, if you're using the scripture journal, on the first page of text, if you flip back, there's a blank page. You can just write on this, this blank page outline and just write down exactly what you see up here. So the first four chapters concern the gospel as the gift of God's righteousness. And we'll, under, we'll come to understand more of what that means. But the gospel as God's giving of his righteousness to his people. Chapters 5 through 8 are how God's righteousness are secured in Christ. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that accomplish and provide this righteousness for his people. Chapters 9 to 11, we see God's righteous dealings with Jews and Gentiles. And then chapters 12 through 16, God's righteousness in community. In other words, what it looks like lived out among the people of God. So there's a broad outline. Feel free to scribble that down on your scripture journal or on a note page or whatever. And we will roughly, Lord willing, uh, tackle the book in those chunks. So chapters one through four should bring us up to the season of Advent. And so we'll take a pause for Advent and then chapters five through eight, the next couple of months, etc. And so perhaps about a year worth of sermons. Uh, of course, that could all change, but that's, uh, that's what I'm looking at right now. Let's read together the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word and to make sure you're still awake as we get going. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. You follow along as I read aloud. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, speak to us. Your servants are listening. Amen. Take your seats. So the first seven verses of the book of Romans, most basically, are just an introduction to the letter, what's called a prescript. Our letters today, we typically write, dear so-and-so, and then there's the body of the letter, and then we say, sincerely, Kyle, right? And so who the letter is from is at the end. That's not the way that letters were written in, uh, in these ancient days, and so all of that would be up front. The letter writer would identify himself, and then he'd identify who he's writing to, and then there'll be some kind of a, a blessing, a, a prayer for, for their well-being. And so in its most basic sense, all that verses 1 through 7 are doing are identifying those elements, the sender, the recipients, and the blessing. Obviously, Paul says a bit more than that, but 
just in a thumbnail sketch, let's look at each of those elements. The sender, Paul. He names himself right up front. Paul, an apostle. Excuse me, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Virtually nobody in church history has seriously challenged the Pauline authorship of this letter. So it is settled and confident Paul, the apostle, is the author of this letter to, to the Romans. Uh, he identifies himself as a servant, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. He's been purchased by Christ. He belongs to him. He has been commissioned by Christ as an apostle. Now, that is a, a unique and special office that existed in the first century that we believe no longer is carried on. There are not apostles walking around today. The apostles were this first-generation leaders in the church. And the, the credentials, basically, of an apostle were this. An eyewitness to the risen Christ and personally commissioned by Christ as an authoritative spokesman for the gospel. And so, basically, the apostles count the 12 minus Judas, who disqualified himself, plus Matthias, who they replaced Jude with, uh, excuse me, Judas with, and then Paul, as he considers himself untimely born, right? Uh, the, the least of all the apostles he calls himself. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, revealed himself to him, commissioned him in that way, in that place, to be his servant, to be his spokesman. And so Paul identifies himself as a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he explains what that means. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, Paul sees his whole life wrapped up in the work of proclaiming the gospel. My whole life and work and ministry is all about proclaiming the gospel, bringing the gospel to new places and new peoples. Paul is a man who's been purchased by Christ, commissioned by Christ, and is singularly devoted to the cause of the gospel of Christ. That is who Paul is. And he writes, skipping down to verse 7, he writes to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, the Christians who live in Rome. We think there are probably more than one congregation in Rome by this time. So this is a letter that's intended for multiple churches in the city of Rome. But he's writing to those in Rome who are Christians, namely those who are loved by God and those who are called to be Christ's saints, his holy people. And then he gives the blessing in verse, the second part of verse 7, and he asks that they might experience the grace and peace of God. So that's basically what's happened in verses 1 through 7. Paul has identified himself as Christ's apostle. He's identified the Christians in Rome as his audience, and he's prayed for them to receive and experience the grace and peace of God. But he says a good bit more than that, doesn't he? In the course of this basic prescript, the apostle provides a level of theological breadth that was almost unheard of in the opening of a letter in that day. It is the longest prescript of the 13 Pauline letters that we have in our New Testament, and it's among the longest of any ancient epistle. 
So it's worth slowing down and paying attention to the content we're faced with right out of the gate. So in announcing the calling that he's been given by the Lord Jesus Christ, he lights on a phrase that also doubles as our title for this morning, the gospel of God. You see that in verse 1. He had been set apart for the gospel of God. And then in his, in his expansion upon the gospel of God, he essentially provides an overture for the letter as a whole, touching on themes that he will revisit and exposit throughout the letter. So what I want to do this morning, the rest of our time, is to point out four of those themes as our organizing principle for the message. So here are four glories of the gospel visible at the outset that will be fleshed out fully in the chapters to come. Four glories of the gospel. Here's the first one. The gospel's heritage. The fulfillment of God's promises. The gospel's heritage is the fulfillment of God's promises. Look in verse 2, after he said he's been set apart for the gospel of God, now in verses 2 through 4 he's going to talk about what that is. He's going to say some things about the gospel of God. The first thing he says is this, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So the first thing to notice about the gospel is that it's not new. It's not out of nowhere. He points us to the reality, the precious reality that God makes promises. Where does he make these promises? In his word. Through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So God's promises to his people have been made verbally through prophets and written down, recorded for posterity in the Old Testament Scriptures. This is similar to another prescript of, of Paul's in the book of Titus. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Where he says... Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Then he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So God made promises concerning eternal life before the ages even began, before time started, before there was a world, God was making promises concerning eternal life. And then eventually, those promises were manifested through his word, which Paul says he is now a preacher of. So there is a clear sense of continuity here between the Old Covenant and the Old Testament Scriptures and what Jesus Christ is doing and what is happening in the gospel of God now. It's not out of nowhere, right? The gospel has a backstory. There's ages of promises and, and echoes and foreshadowings that came long before Jesus stepped onto the scene. So the gospel's heritage is the fulfillment of these promises that God has been making. He also says in verse 3 of Jesus that he was descended from David, according to the flesh. Now, we'll do more on that claim in just a minute, 
But for now, I just want you to notice, Jesus didn't arrive on the scene out of nowhere with no explanation, without a backstory. He came in fulfillment of, in continuity with, what God was doing and saying for millennia to and through the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. So the gospel of God is the continuation of the story of God and his people. It's not totally new and unexpected. To the extent it's unexpected, it's because his people are slow to believe. But it's in continuity with what God has been doing. Here's a quick word of application here. Look for Christ and the gospel in all the scriptures. Don't abandon the Old Testament. I know it's big, and there's a lot of historical details, and there's a lot of funny names, and it can be hard to make sense of, but don't give up on it. Don't abandon the Old Testament, and don't approach it just as a book of, like, character studies and moral lessons. That's often how Christians regard the Old Testament. But read it, and read it with your eyes peeled for echoes, foreshadowings, and promises of the gospel and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The gospel has a heritage in the promises of God that he is now fulfilling. So the first claim he makes about the gospel is that it has a backstory. Right? It comes in precious fulfillment of God's glorious promises to Israel many years ago. And the second gospel glory that he proclaims is this, the gospel's center. The gospel's center. Namely, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The center of the gospel is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel. Look at this in verse 3. After he has said of the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the scriptures, now he says, verse 3, concerning his son. The gospel of God is concerning his son. In other words, it is about, it is centered on. The son of God is the subject of the gospel of God. And he explicitly identifies that son in verse 4 as Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's no ambiguity about who he's talking about here or who he's giving that designation to. The gospel's center is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he gives us here two essential designations for Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. In verse 3, he says, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Descended from David according to the flesh. Now, we read earlier in the service from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God's promise to David of a forever king who would come from his family. So it's no small thing to note that Jesus Christ is born in the family of David, in the line of David. Even more explicit in the prophets, look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Who is the righteous branch from David that he's referring to? The Lord Jesus Christ, descended of David, the Messiah for long, long ago foretold. 
So Jesus Christ, first of all, is the promised Messiah. Again, in keeping with and in fulfillment of the promises God has made to his people Israel. And the second thing, the second designation about Jesus is this. He is the victorious king. He's the promised Messiah, and he's the victorious king. Where do I get that? Look at verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now, Son of God in the Old Testament was a messianic title. It was a title for the anointed one of God who would come and bring deliverance. Son of God had that sense, and that's what is in view here. It must not mean, it cannot mean, that Jesus began to be the Son of God in the sense that he wasn't the Son of God before. No, John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only Son begotten from the Father. Okay, so the Word, the Son, is co-eternal co-reigning with God the Father and God the Spirit. So this is not something fundamentally new to his personhood. This has to do with a seat of authority. This has to do with the role he has now been given. Notice the word declared in verse 4. It's important for you to see that he did not become the Son of God in power. He was declared to be the Son of God Empower. This is an appointment. This is an announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was declared to be the Son of God. And notice the character of his declaration it's, and this appointment. It's in power. He wasn't just declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, which means that he was appointed a seat of divine messianic authority. And this happened at a particular moment in history, namely his resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, which, by the way, is an odd designation, but seems clearly to refer to the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection was an announcement to the powers and principalities, this is the Son of God, the glorious King over all. In other words, what Paul is pointing out here is that Jesus of Nazareth, the man, is the Messiah who had been promised for long ages to the people of Israel, born in the lineage of King David, and he publicly proved his qualification for that role when the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. This exaltation of Jesus Christ is what is celebrated in the famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the exalted state of the Lord Jesus Christ, risen in power and reigning in victory over the world. There is none other. There is no other king but Jesus. 
This all means that Jesus Christ is king over the universe. He is reigning now from heaven, putting enemies under his feet. And as John Piper says, there will come a day when he breaks forth out of his visible rule with visible glory and establishes his kingdom openly and gloriously on the earth. Hallelujah, what a day that will be. Make no mistake, the gospel of God is all about Jesus Christ, his son. So we've seen the gospel's heritage and the fulfilled promises of the Old Testament. We've seen the gospel's center in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Next, we see the gospel's outcome. The gospel's outcome, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. In verse 5, he says, we've, through whom, through Christ, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, there's a sense in which faith is itself obedience to God's call, right? The gospel demands repent of your sin and believe in Christ. And so repentant faith is an obedient response to the gospel's demand. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. What Paul means is captured better by saying the obedience that comes from faith. Not the obedience of faith, with faith itself as the obedience, but the obedience that is fueled by and stems from faith. And so Paul here says that the very purpose of his apostolic ministry, right, he's been given grace and apostleship. He's been appointed to his work, his ministerial work, for the purpose of bringing about the obedience that comes from faith. Well, what does that mean? It means that the aim of gospel preaching and gospel ministry is transformed lives. It's not just a bunch of people who name drop Jesus and think they're going to heaven. It's people who have been gripped with the grace of God in Christ, who have yielded themselves to his plans and purposes in their lives, and who give honor to the Lord Jesus by their faithful obedience to his commands. This is what Paul is after. And this is what Paul is after because this is what Jesus himself is after. If you don't believe me, consider Jesus' commission in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Jesus doesn't want converts, he wants disciples. One way we know that Paul has this kind of ongoing transformation and obedience in view is that he says that the obedience of faith is for the sake of his name, that is Jesus' name, among the nations. That is, for the honor and reputation of Jesus Christ in the world. And what is done to the name of Jesus Christ by people who claim to know him, but whose lives make a mockery of his character and teachings? What does the world think of Christians who behave like jerks on social media? or who party and get drunk with their work friends, or who revile and demean men and women in public office, or who slander and gossip about other people as soon as their backs are turned. What does that do to the name, the honor, the reputation of Jesus Christ in the world when people who claim to know him act and live in this way? 
Brothers and sisters, the gospel of God contains not only the power to keep you out of hell at the final judgment, but the power to conform your life day by day, bit by bit, to the will and way of Jesus Christ. A life of growing obedience is the fruit of faith that saves. Or to say it another way, saving faith is transforming faith. That's what Jesus is after. The grace that comes to us in the gospel of God is grace that changes us. It's grace that leads us to greater obedience that comes from faith. The gospel's heritage, the gospel's center, the gospel's outcome. Finally, we see the gospel's reach. The gospel's reach, namely all the nations. All the nations. You remember where he started? The gospel of God for which Paul is commissioned as a minister began with promises made by God to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But is that where it stays? Is that where the gospel ends? Not on your life. There is, you see, there is gospel continuity with national Israel as the covenant people of God, but there is an expansion beyond Jewish boundaries and borders that was always part of God's redemptive purposes in Christ. All the nations. You can see his pastoral concern for the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the Roman churches in the way that he brings out both of these elements in the letter's opening paragraph. So where do we see that gospel expansion, this reach of the gospel in in these verses? Look at verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Where? Among all the nations. Nations, what's translated as nations is the Greek ethne, which really means people groups. So we're not necessarily having in mind social political boundaries. It has in mind all of the ethnic peoples on planet earth. And the gospel is going forward through his apostleship for the sake of Christ's name among all the ethne, among all the peoples of the earth. And you see, Paul's apostolic calling was particularly ministry among the Gentiles. That doesn't mean he only preached the gospel to Gentiles. And in fact, it was often his custom to go into a synagogue first, a Jewish synagogue when he, when he first entered a new city. But consider... What Paul says of himself in chapter 11, verse 13, he calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, where you read the story of uh, of Paul's conversion, God says in a vision to Ananias, he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Yes, the people of Israel included in the ministry of Paul. But what is first and paramount in his calling? The Gentiles. To bring the gospel and the proclamation of Christ as king to all the ethne of the world. So in his evangelism and church planting efforts, Paul was focused on Gentiles. And indeed, God used Paul as the primary human instrument through whom the way for the gospel was opened to the Gentile world. 
And if you can, you can watch that unfold in the book of Acts as you read about his missionary journeys. And he's continuing here. Even as he writes this letter, he's hoping to continue and expand the reach of his gospel ministry all the way to Spain. We're actually not sure if he made it. We don't have anything recorded about his ministry in Spain, and it's, there's a good chance that he doesn't make it out of Rome after he gets there. But nevertheless, his calling is to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, and Paul wants to get as far as he possibly can into the Gentile world with the gospel of the kingdom. You can also see that reflected in verses 6 and 7 where he speaks of, of you, the audience to whom he writes, right? Uh, for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. All right. Now, all those in Rome loved by God and called to be saints would include Jewish Christians, but it certainly includes the Gentile population that, that uh, comprises these churches as well. So, Paul is very concerned to get the gospel to the Gentiles not for his own sake or for his own glory, but because the calling of God, the redemptive purposes of God in Christ are the gospel to all the nations. Jesus said it himself in the commission we already read. Make disciples of all nations. And so the gospel's reach is universal, is global, is for all peoples. And this is just in a greeting. There's two phrases that he uses here at the end to describe Christians. I want to spend just a minute on them. In verse 6, he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says, those who are loved by God and called to be saints. I don't think those are two different groups of people. He's not writing for the sake of you who are called to belong to Jesus and you who are called to be saints. That's the same group of people, namely Christians. Sinners who have been redeemed and restored by the grace of God through faith in the finished work of Jesus the Messiah. That's who he has in mind, but notice how he describes them. Nay, how he describes us. You who are called. That's called by God. That's a unique, special, personal, divine invitation to belong to Jesus Christ. Who are you? You are his. It's more important to say whose you are than who you are. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You're his people. And then again, in verse 7, those who are loved by God, that's what characterizes you. Who are you? I am loved by God. And I am called, same word, same concept, called to be saints. And that word saint is rooted in the word holy, holy ones, called to be his holy ones. So two sides of the same coin, as it were, to be a Christian. One side is we belong to him. We are his. We are secure in him and we owe him our lives. And the other side of that coin is you are called to be holy. You are called to represent him in the world. You are called to be distinct from the world. That's what it means in part to belong to Jesus Christ. 
This is what is most fundamentally true of all those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are loved by God, and you are called to be his holy ones. Do you believe that? Do you feel yourself to be loved by God? Receive it. Own it. He declares it to be true. And he's proved it in the fulfilling of his promises and the giving of his son. You are loved by God. Called to be his holy ones. To belong to him. To represent him. He concludes the prescript with a, pair, with a prayer of blessing that his readers would experience the grace and peace of God through the Lord Jesus. Is that something you desire? Peace? Grace? If you want to receive peace and grace, it comes only through the glorious gospel of God that we've examined a bit here today. God has fulfilled his promises to redeem his people by sending his own son in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for our sins and was raised to victorious eternal life by the power of the Holy Spirit. If anyone listening to my voice this morning remains yet undecided or uncertain concerning where you stand with your creator, and you'd like to have the confidence that you belong to him, that you are loved by him, and that you will share in his glorious resurrection, then today could be the day that changes everything for you. Turn from your sin. Call upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, and all the glorious promises contained in the gospel of God will belong to you forever. Grand Canyon is pretty hard to adequately describe, but it's sure worth beholding together, isn't it? Let's pray together. Father, grant us your grace to see and savor and trust in all that you are for us in Jesus Christ, for the glory of your name.